oh man, you know you're doing it right when you have kids still singing the song after it's done. There was a great rabbi named Rabbi Morris Adler. And a collection of his sermons are gathered together, and one of the sermons becomes the title of his book. I'm only human, the eternal alibi. (laughs) And I was thinking about that phrase, I'm only human. I'm only human can be an alibi or it can be an aspiration. It can be an excuse or it can be a goal. It can be a releasing one from the hook or it can be what puts us back on it. I'm only human and food. Maybe no greater area of our vulnerability and our dependency than in the area of eating. And this is a kind of eating time of the year, believe it or not, because in less than three weeks, we'll be hearing that phrase, when do we eat, when do we eat, when do we eat, at pretty much every Seder around the country and maybe around the world. And in the tradition, food itself and Passover, the orality, the mouth element of Passover is profoundly important. Not only is their tremendous eating and importance to the ritualization of eating in the Passover Seder, but even what comes out of our mouth, not what goes in, is actually sacred. Sacred storytelling. The word Pesach in the Kabbalah of the Ari and Isaac Luria's Kabbalah means the mouth that speaks, the speaking mouth. Passover is the original cure of speech. Before Freud, there was Haggadah. And of course, tomorrow morning, in synagogues around the world, in our weekly wisdom, in the Parsha, in chapter 11 of the book of Leviticus, we will get our laundry list of things that we are to eat and not to eat. That is the question for Jews. <laughs> Verse 47 of chapter 11, Lahavdil benatameh uvenatahor, to make a havdalah, a separation between the impure and the pure. And the animal, the chaya, the living thing that is eaten, and that which is not to be eaten. The Torah has an assumption that animals are eaten by human beings. Those living things that we share the planet with, that we eat them, and the Torah has to give us distinctions and categories in which to place them. This is the chaya ha'ne'echelet, this is the chaya, the living thing that is eaten, and this is the chaya shalon that isn't eaten. Now that assumption of the Torah is not actually plain and clear to everyone, as I found out this past weekend, hanging out with a clo- like really close dear friends of ours. One of their daughters, Eliana, said to me, over lunch as we were deciding what to eat, right? Going down the laundry list of things that for me is basically family vacation everywhere we go. Do we eat this? Do we not eat that? So turning to Eliana, she said to me, oh, I can't eat that. I don't eat anything that had a face. (laughs) And then she added in absolute sincerity, it's their eyes. I pushed her to explain more, and she said, it's just not right. I can't explain it. It's just 
not right. Now, Eliana is all of seven years old. And this realization came to her, it was growing over a period of time, but it culminated on her birthday this year in January, and it was a kind of birthday present to her. Now, putting aside whether or not it's healthy for someone that age to desist from eating animal protein, it is. And putting aside for the moment, gently, whether or not she's actually right that it's not right, it's just not right. How amazing is that resolve? How amazing is it to be seven years old and to have such clarity of purpose and integrity that you get a deep, deep sense around something that is connected with compassion? I want to call that compassion quotient. I don't know where it comes from in individuals. Some are born with high IQ and low CQ. And some are born with very high CQ. This young woman, this young girl, has a very high CQ. Her compassion quotient is very evolved. I know for me personally, growing up as a modern Orthodox Jew as I did, my CQ was very low. In fact, we were kind of natural carnivores. We ate meat and we ate lots of it. Everything was punctuated in my life by meat. It was a staple of our diet on the weekdays. It was a staple of our diet on the weekends. During the week, like, we ate fried chicken and pepper steak. On Shabbat, we ate stuffed broiled chicken. It had to be broiled. My father insisted on it being broiled. Chopped liver, of course. I know somebody's saying, oh my God, but yes, chopped liver with lots of pepper on it. And the mandatory cold cuts on Shabbat morning and Shabbat lunch. On Sundays, we had deli Sundays, where as kids, we we chalished, as we say, we looked forward to corned beef and pastrami sandwiches. That combination sent us into heaven. <laughs> and the best of all of our carnivorous journeys was on the way to Grandpa Ali's house in Forest Hills to eat boiled, never grilled, but boiled frankfurters because he was from Germany, and that's the way they did it in Germany. <laughs> so I don't remember having that compassion quotient alive in me as a young kid. I don't remember or recall the feeling of a soul of an animal or even the deep ethical and moral issues that surrounded consumption of meat. Those weren't on my radar. Growing up as a religious Jew and living within the normative Jewish worldview of humanity's place at the apex of the hierarchy of evolution, I was surrounded by the assumption that animals, like the entire natural world, were created for me. <laughs> this cow is your cow. This cow is my cow. It's the whole world. And so I'd like us to now focus for the next 10 minutes on that assumption. That assumption that is at the heart of that blissful ignorance, maybe willful ignorance. I'd like to ask tonight, as Carol says, about the creation story that maybe, is it true? Or as the philosopher Mary Midgley says, why do animals matter? Why do animals matter? And how should that be reflected in our behavior? And so I'd like to unpack that with the help of a Talmudic story that was introduced to me by Dr. Aaron Gross 
in an incredibly important article that he wrote called Jewish Animal Ethics. In that story, it's found in Talmud in Bava Metzia, and it goes something like this. There was a rabbi, he was a great rabbi named Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. They just called him rabbi. He was so great, they just called him rabbi. Like Pele, or like <laughs> Beyonce. I don't know. Mai sehaya, mai the story is about a calf that was being led to a ritually, right, a ritual slaughter, a shrita. And the calf broke away. Azal, And the calf broke away and he hid its head in the folds of rabbi's garment and wept. And he said to the little egla, he said to the calf, Lech zil, go, lekach notzart, go, for this you were created. Amre, ho'il velo kamerachem, lesu ale yisurin. A heavenly voice called out and said, since this rabbi had no compassion, let him also face sufferings. And sufferings came upon this rabbi. The second part of the story goes like this. There was one day when Rabbi's female servant was sweeping around the house and there were some infant rodents were scattered from their nest and she was sweeping them up and he said to her, let them go. Because it is written in Psalms, his compassion extends to all creatures. And with that moment, his suffering ceased. Dr. Aaron Gross argues from this story that there are two essential frames to the question, why do animals matter in Jewish ethical theory? Animals matter, he says, because they benefit human beings. And animals matter because they have inherent value. Two frames. Basically, animals matter because of me, us, and animals matter because of them. Animals have extrinsic value to us and intrinsic value in and of themselves. It's reflected in the story, he says. In the first moment, Rabbi says, this calf comes to hide, and you were created for this. And in the second half of the story, it's clear that he gets the message that they have inherent value. Animals matter because they are alive, and all living things matter. The tension between these two frames. When animals matter because they benefit us, it emphasizes our sense of being at the hierarchy, that we are more evolved, that we have greater complexity within us. But because of that, animals matter to us because they essentially remind us of our deep humanity. Animals matter to us because when we treat animals ethically, we remind ourselves that we are still human. To remind ourselves we are still human, animals have extrinsic value because we as stewards of creation and given, given the right given the responsibility to take responsibility, to be watchers over, to be shomrim for all of creation, we act towards them in beneficent ways because we 
need to remember that we are less human when we don't treat animals humanely. Animals matter to us as creatures because they become vehicles to which compassion is enacted. Our ethics towards them serve to help us become greater, compassionate, quotient individuals. But that's only half of the story. Animals matter because they have inherent dignity, means that we value them as a part of all of creation. And what emerges from these two frames are two responsibilities, he argues. One is to protect, not animals, but to protect the precious, imperiled human sentiment of compassion that flows simultaneously towards both humans and animals. To protect the sentiment of compassion, our CQ. And to protect animals, which is the second protection, to protect animals from humans where economic incentives make abuse likely. Now I'm telling you, I'm not here tonight to argue that we should all become vegetarians. I'm not here to argue that all of us should have Ileana's compassion quotient. There is a minor strand of Jewish thought that argues that eating animals is a concession, an ethical and moral concession to what it is to be only human. And that one day in the Messianic era, we won't eat animals. I'm not here to argue that, by definition, all consumption of all animal products is unethical. But I'd like to ask us tonight, and this weekend, and maybe moving forward, are we honoring both of these modes in our lives and in our Jewish spiritual practice? Do we live a compassionately alive life towards animals? Now, the first frame, where animals are given, as it were, Shrita, slaughtering animals. The question is, can we protect our humanity and protect animals' inherent value at the same time? Can we take animal life compassionately? Do animals die well? Can we raise animals compassionately and do animals live well? Can animals die well? And can animals live well? And by the way, let me tell you, Jewish tradition is the jury is out on whether or not we can take animal life compassionately. The Gemara even says that a butcher, the Gemara says in Kiddush, that a butcher is a partner with Amalek. I, for, forgive me if anybody here is a butcher. Forgive me if anybody is the son or the daughter or grandchild of a butcher. But the rabbis are clued in to the fact that if we are to take animal life in a way that is still maintaining and protecting that sentiment of compassion, it's very difficult. There's a story of the Baal Shem Tov, that the Baal Shem Tov was so sensitive a soul, he had so high a CQ, a compassion quotient, that he used to sharpen, he used to wet the shrita knife, the, the ritual slaughter knife, with his tears. With his tears. He understood how difficult it is to be in the business of taking the life of something that is living, that is chaya, and still remain compassionate. And for the most part, shrita, it has abuses. There are places where it doesn't work. But for the most part, it has, to some degree, maintained a level of deep humanity towards living creatures. But another question, and here's where 
Imagine, and a friend of mine who's here tonight told me this story and it blew me out of the water. He said that he moved out of the city and he was living outside of the city and, and the property that he bought was overrun by deer. And because his property was overrun by deer, he had to, as many do, had to take it into his hands. He had to begin to, to, to hunt deer for the sake of, of the ecosystem, for the sake of his own property. But he made sure that he would eat right, what, he, what he hunted. And he told me a story that just completely broke my heart. I asked him recently if he's still hunting deer. He said, I can't anymore. I said, why? He said, because once, a couple of months ago, I went out to shoot a deer. And after I shot the deer, I looked, I looked over to my right and I saw that its mother was standing there. Something broke in him. Something broke in me when I heard that story. But notwithstanding that story, Right, that's an extreme expression of how difficult it is to get into the business of eating animals. But we do it decently well. There are companies like Grow and Behold and KOL Foods that try their best to maintain standards of deep Jewish compassion towards animals, even if we are in the business of eating animals. But what about the second question? Right? Not just how do animals die, but how do animals live? Do we protect the inherent value of animal life by making sure that there's no tsar balei chayim, that there's no unnecessary suffering towards animals. In the pre-industrial world, when animals were raised not only for consumption, maybe yes. And yet still today there are farms that treat animals humanely as they live. But that's the one percenters. 99% literally suffer in grotesque forms. Factory farming is morally wrong and ethically problematic on every single level. Factory farming has brought into our, into our world a world where it is absolutely impossible, impossible to consume meat that isn't produced unethically. 99% of all poultry that is eaten in the United States is produced in factory farms, 99%. 97% of all land animals are on factory farms. We eat, as a nation, 8 billion chickens and turkeys every year, 30 million cows, 110 million pigs, and almost all of them are produced on factory farms. It's amazing. Egg-laying hens, egg-laying hens live on eight of them, live together on less than a sheet of paper. Okay, sir, I can see this is what happens when the eyes roll over and you think, okay, great. Sounds like the environment problem, eh? What can I do? These statistics are staggering and they should stagger anyone that wants to lead a compassionate life. We can lobby for climate legislation, which is absolutely radically important, we should lobby and march for all manner of social ill and social issues, absolutely essential. And that we can make a real difference just by consuming fewer animal products, especially if they're produced on factory farms. Simple changes. Just committing to eating less 
meat. Just committing to eating and participating in fewer products that are produced on factory farms changes the game. So last week, last week I spoke about passion, about being on fire for love, or if you will, I used the language of God or spirit, transformation, being lit or getting lit for, right, for the holy life. In some ways, I was reformulating a deep American ethos, life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Say it again. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. The Jewish tradition in all of its different pieces, coming to synagogue on Friday night and Saturday mornings, waking up and praying, having a gratitude practice, doing mitzvot, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Did you know that according to Ibn Ezra, a great 12th century, a 12th century thinker, exegete, that the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself includes animals. The Ahavta, the Reachah Kamocha includes animals. Can you imagine? To love your neighbor as yourself, your neighbor are animals. Your next door neighbor, Betsy. So that American ethos, which is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, in the Jewish context, is life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Happiness is not our highest ethical standard. Am I happy? Because happy means I don't need to make a sacrifice as long as it makes me happy. But life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is deeply Jewish. And I hope that you all know that last week when I spoke about being lit on fire for God, I didn't mean the God of a fundamentalist. I didn't mean a God who tells you with absolute radical certainty what is true. I meant that sense of deep re residing compassion that each of us has. Right? I will never from this pulpit, never in this community ever tell you to be lit on fire for a God that isn't loving and compassionate. That I promise to you because it doesn't exist in our tradition in a healthy way. But we can get lit for compassion. We can have passion for compassion. And we can take small, significant steps to reducing the way that we live in the world in uncompassionate or unholy ways. We can raise our compassion quotient. And let me tell you a couple of ways you can do it. Put yourselves on the hook for small incremental changes. My dear friend, Rabbi Chaim Seidler Feller, who was the rabbi of the, of the Hillel at UCLA, said to me this morning, he said, you know, a couple of years ago, I heard how much eating meat and meat products produced in factory farms changes the climate and the planet. And I said, you know, I can't do it. <laughs> I said, Chaim, what do you mean you can't do it? He said, it's too big. But then I went home, I thought, you know, I can do something. So I'm going to stop eating meat, he said, in his house. I'll only eat meat when I go out to a restaurant. And there aren't that many kosher restaurants in LA, as far as I know, when he was there 30 years ago, so it's a big deal. Doing something small, you don't have to do the whole thing. Something small. You can make a decision to eat meat only on Shabbat and on holidays, and during the week you go meat-free. That's called Mushi in Israel. There's a whole organization called Mushi. Meat-free, meat only on, meat only on Shabbos and holidays, Mushi. You can purchase certified humane products. 
You can purchase animal welfare-approved products. You can purchase products that are directly from farmers that you know treat their animals humanely. You can do all of those things. You know what you else can do? You can, you can after Shabbat, you can, well, actually, on Shabbat, you can come to tomorrow's Green Kiddush and participate in what we're doing tomorrow at the Green Kiddush, thanks to members. And after tomorrow, and after Shabbat, you can go onto websites like buyingpoultry.com or shamaimvaaretz.org or go to our partner chazon.org or the Humane Society of America of ushsus.org. You can do all those things or you can go to my friend Sarah Chandler's website which is jewishinitiativeforanimals.org. But here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to walk in and say, wow, that rabbi is so strident. I came all the way to, 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 to Rome, and he didn't talk about the heart. All he did was read some prepared speech about how I should take care of animals. And I'm already doing it because I'm a vegan. And I'm, or, 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 wow, I can't believe the rabbi gave me that speech, and we're going out to Talia Steakhouse tonight, and I can't believe it. Now not only do I have to eat meat, but i got to feel really guilty about it. Wow. Wow, Rome was supposed to be this renewal, lovey-dovey shul, and all I got is this big strident guilt speech. Just like, you know, being in a... No, that's not what I want. I don't want that. That's a waste. That's a big waste. I want you and me to want to feel what Eliana felt. I want you and me and all of us to feel the depth of, it's just not right. I can't explain it, but it's just not right. I can't eat that. Or... I can only eat that when, or I'll only eat that. I'll just do something, please, something. Please, not just for me, but for the sake of the planet, for the sake of those animals, for the sake of that imperiled spark of compassion that our tradition says is alive and well in each and every one of us, but will only grow to the extent that we fan its flame. If we care enough when we buy products that say, look, I wonder if animals suffered for me to benefit from this. Not to mention human beings, which we'll get to, of course. But animals on this Shabbat of Kashrut, on this Shabbat of what to eat and what not to eat. I want to bless each and every one of you because from the depths of my heart, you know that I stood before almost all of you on Kony Dre this past year, and I made a promise. I promised that I wouldn't eat meat this year. And it's not easy. But after 46 years of thinking it's the right thing to do, I said, I'm going to put myself on the hook. And I love sitting with people who are enjoying a good corned beef and pastrami. I love sitting with people who've done research. We can all do something. We can all make a promise. We can all increase our compassion quotient. If you need help, there's plenty of support. <laughs>